It's good to see you. It's good to be here today. It's good to assemble as a body of believers who have the freedom to worship, the freedom to pray, the freedom to express ourselves and our trust and belief and faith in Christ, and the freedom to look into His Word. It is a privilege. It is the most extraordinary privilege we have on the planet to be the body of Christ. How does it strike you when an entertainer, a politician, a spokesman or woman, some public figure speaks ill, pushes the envelope a little too far, uses a little too much vulgarity, maybe a string of obscenities associated around Christ or the people of Christ? How do you view that man or woman after they do that or while they're doing it? If you're a follower of Christ, something unsettles you a bit and you might get a little rancored inside when someone misinterprets, misrepresents, misspeaks what Christ or the Bible or his church say. Certainly the church is not a perfect vessel. We bring some of it on ourselves, but we still don't like it when they misrepresent or speak ill or unkindly or in vulgarity toward the work of Christ. Why can't we all just get along and coexist in a peaceful, politically correct world? Why is it that we are all beat over the head with the tolerance stick? And if you don't do it my way, you're intolerant, and that seems to apply only one direction. The majority of humankind and the majority of people have either an indifferent or antagonistic view toward God and especially the God of the Bible. The world may say they are tolerant of all and let's all get along, but when push comes to shove and the truth is put before, it's hard to be indifferent toward the truth of the gospel. People can try to be theologically Swiss and not engaged, but it's technically impossible because indifference toward God, indifference toward Christ is in fact hatred toward God and hatred toward Christ. There's no neutrality. The world will always misrepresent God. The world will always misquote the truth of Scripture. The world will always misapply the things of Christ. And we live in that context, in that situation, where we will always be misrepresented. Christ told them, told us, told his disciples, and if the world hates me, it will hate you too. In John chapter 11, verses 49 and 50, Caiaphas, the high priest, is speaking. He said, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for one man to die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Caiaphas, the high priest, was saying it's better to kill this Jesus to save the nation than it is to let him continue on. And in this plotting of murder, in this intention to to kill the Christ, he sends forth a prophecy he doesn't even know he's doing. As the high priest in meditating murder, this double-edged prophecy goes into place. The only remedy is to kill this man because he wants to be the king. After Jesus is arrested, he's taken to the Sanhedrin. He spends a night, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, in Caiaphas' home, in the basement, in the cellar of his house, if you will. 
And then the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas will take him to Pilate. There'll be three more trials in the Gospel of Luke before he is crucified. Two will be before Pilate, one will be public, one will be private, and one will be before Herod. In these arrests and in these trials, they are trying to get the authority to kill Jesus. We've talked before, the religious leaders of the day had religious and civil authority, but they had no criminal authority. They could execute matters that had to do with their civil government, with their religious government, insofar as Judaism applied. But don't forget, they are occupied by a foreign power. Jerusalem, we would call the Washington, D.C. of America, of Israel, is occupied by a Roman power, and they're telling them what they can and can't do. They have, quote, freedom of religion to a broad extent, but they can't execute criminal justice, only civil and religious as it works within Judaism, the way they would teach it. So it's a difficult situation. In some ways, they have great freedom, but in other ways, they're handcuffed to what they can and cannot do. We begin a political dance today, and the political dance between Pilate and Herod and Pilate and the Jews who want Christ dead. And in chapter 23 of the Gospel of Luke, we resume our text. So if you have your Bible, Luke 23, we begin with the first two verses. Luke 23, verses 1 and 2, Jesus goes before Pilate. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him, that is Jesus, to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. This whole ruling body from chapter 2252 is the 70 or 72 Sanhedrin that would comprise the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and the spokesperson, I believe, in front of Pilate is Caiaphas. So some 70 folks have assembled in front of Pilate. They want an audience, and they want the authority to kill Jesus. Now, when he's brought before him, uh, Pilate is the Roman governor understand a little bit about, about his role. He's a prefect. He's a judge. And he d- answered directly to the Roman emperor. Pilate is an interesting figure historically. Uh, he lived in Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea. It would be the lap of luxury to live on the Mediterranean Sea at that period of time. And in 1961, they uncovered a stone. I've shown the picture of it before. We take groups to see a facsimile of the stone that has the inscription, the prefect Pilate, over, over the Mediterranean, over Caesarea, and other parts. So we know he was a true historical figure. Not only does the Bible teach that, but archaeology comes along as well. They began to accuse him of three charges in front of him. Understand, the Jews don't like Pilate, and Pilate doesn't like the Jewish group at all. There's no love lost between these two. Three charges. Look at your text. Misleading the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, Messiah, a king. Misleading the nation is the idea of sedition, or uh, it really means to twist or pervert something. So he's distorting the nation. Forbidding to pay taxes would be treason. If you didn't pay your taxes to Rome, that was a treasonous crime. They could arrest you. And finally, saying that he himself is the Christ, a Messiah, a king. Now, in truth, in chapter 1941, Jesus came to Jerusalem and wept over the city. He loved Israel. He loved the nation. In Luke 19 and 20, he tells them, pay your taxes. They ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? He says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which is God. Give what belongs to Caesar. Give what belongs to God, God. And so they couldn't 
truthfully bring that accusation. The third one, that he is a king, a messiah, may seem a little more troubling on the surface, but any three of these taken carefully and specifically could be punishable by death, and that's why they bring them, bring them before him. When they speak of his identity as Christ Messiah, remember Jesus is often, in some ways, coy is not the right word, but he's very careful about his identity. He calls himself the Son of Man. He tells them. He reveals himself to the disciples. But he never once says, I am the King of the Jews, and you must worship me or die. Never once does he just come across, even to his own people, and say, I am your King. Because he's very careful how he reveals his identity to those who will believe in him, those who will follow him, and not to the world that has no interest in him. Because the world will always misunderstand him. So he comes to his own. Well, look at Pilate's questions and his report, verses 3 to 4. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and to the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. Literally, we might read verse 3, You, you're the king of the Jews? It's a mocking comment. You? What would a king look like? A king would be dressed in royalty with people around him, with servants at his command. Not a man who spent a day and a night uh, arrested and spent a night in jail in Caiaphas' house. He probably is disheveled. He, he could have been beaten a little along the way. The, the true beatings and mockings are yet to come. But he's brought, uh, envision him before Pilate by 70 accusers. You're a king? Now, Christ's response is the most difficult to translate in English uh, that there is. And there's only two words in Greek, but if you take all the English Bibles in this room, King James, ESV, NIV, NASB, Net Bible, all of them will have a different rendering of these words. It is as you say, you said it, you said I am, all sorts of twisted English uh, translations. Part of that is, I think, intentional on the gospel writers because it is an enigmatic expression. Uh, to understand what he's saying, let's back up just a bit. For Pilate and for Rome, what are they going to be concerned about? A political king. They don't, they don't have any fear to a religious or a spiritual king. In fact, within Judaism in that day, there were just like we talk about denominations. Even in that day, there were different sects and groups of Jews who had different opinions. The scribes and Pharisees differed on the resurrection, for example. And so there were factious groups that didn't agree. If you want to be a king of those groups, fine, go right ahead. I don't care about that. But if you're a political king, we have a different issue. Because you're challenging Rome. If you're challenging Rome, then Pilate's got to do something about it because he answers directly to the emperor, and that's his number one concern, is his position before the emperor and his role in the system. Jesus' answer, it is, as you say, could be translated something like this. You have worded the question in a, such a way that I will say yes, but I wouldn't have asked it that way. That's a lot for two words, but that's the best I can give it to you. Uh, it, it, given the parameters of the way you're asking the question, and that's why some Bibles say you've said it. Given the way you've asked the question, yes, but I wouldn't have asked it that way. Because why? 
Pilate doesn't care at all if he's the king of the Jews. Pilate's only concern is, are you coming as a political king? You sure don't look like it. You look like a joke. Who's this guy? He's done nothing wrong. He's a vagrant as far as Pilate is concerned. He's a carpenter that's wandered around Israel for three years. He doesn't care. There's no threat to him. So his initial response is, I find no guilt in this man, verse 4. Pilate's, Pilate's interest is purely political. He knows the Jews hate him. He hates the Jews. All he wants to do is placate Rome. That's who he's concerned about. Now, think about it if he's really a shrewd politician. If Jesus was a genuine threat to Rome, would the Jews be bringing him to Rome saying he's a threat to Rome? We have countries all over the world today that are collapsing from malevolent dictators. And factious groups rise up and take the dictator out. We can look at Egypt. We can look at what's going on in Syria and Libya. And on these things will go. And what happens after you take the malevolent dictator out, you've got factious groups who don't agree on how the country should be run. Take Egypt, for example. So they're in worse turmoil than they were under a malevolent dictator, if you want to measure it by strife and people being killed. So the problem is, if you're going to overthrow a government, would you stop the overthrow of a government that you hated? Or, to put it more simply, as my history professor would often say, when you go to war, you take anyone who will go with you. If the Jews want to get rid of the Roman power over them in the center of their capital and their nation, they don't care who takes them out. So a shrewd politician would go, this has nothing to do with you thinking he's a seditious, rebellious, non, not, not paying his taxes, want to be king. You want me to do your dirty work for you. So Pilate is a good, shrewd politician in that regard. He sees no threat to Rome is the bottom line. But the crowd insists, verse 5, but they kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting even from Galilee as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at this time. The accusations move from specific. Uh, he's, he's stirring up things. He's seditious. He's not paying taxes. He wants to be a king. Now it's general. He's all over the place stirring up things. It's, it's like in a marriage when you say, honey, you didn't get home last on, on time. Or you forgot to do this. I asked you to do this. And it's a specific, easy for you to say, a specific thing. And then after that, you say, well, you always and never, and it escalates, right, to these broad general terms. The specifics are one thing, but the generalizations are over the top. And they're over the top now. They're insisting, he's everywhere. He's all over the whole region, stirring up things and, and carting all these problems. And this doesn't convince Pilate anymore. In fact, what it does is it gives him an out. Did you say Galilee? Huh, this is Herod's problem now. A good politician wants to avoid a lose-lose situation. The Jews hate him. He hates the Jews. He doesn't care about Jesus. Send him over to Herod. Maybe Herod can resolve it, and he can wash his hands the first time. That's what a good politician would do. We need a little history of the Herods and what's going on here. This is Herod Antipas. We'll see more of him next weekend. 
He is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had lots of sons. It's a very complex made-for-TV series. It's full of drama and murder and all sorts of incestuous, crazy stuff in the clan of the Herods. Herod the Great was the builder. He built the temple complex. He built the Herodium, a mountain, a man-made mountain, nothing like it in the world. He was incredible in his construction projects. He put Herod Antipas, one of his sons, as a, a, a governor over an area of Galilee and Perea. Now, Antipas wanted to be the king. Antipas wanted to take over not only Judea, but all the dominion his father used to have. That was his, that was his drivenness. He wanted to take over control. Now, there's a woman named Herodias. Herodias is married to a man named Philip. Philip is Herod Antipas's brother. You know the story from the New Testament where John the Baptist comes and he accuses Antipas. He says, you've taken your brother's wife. You took Philip's wife. You can't do that. And Herod is a Jew to some degree. And so what does Herod do? He throws John the Baptist in prison because he took another man's wife. He took Herodias away from Philip and he married her. And you know the story of Herodias and the dance. Later in time, uh, the daughter of Herodias dances for King Herod Antipas, and he's so happy with the dance, he says, I'll give you whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. He wants the kingdom. And the, the mom says to the daughter, you want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herodias is the scheming one behind the scenes. She didn't like what he said about John. She didn't like what he implied about her. Let's kill him. So Herod Antipas kills the Baptist. The head's brought to prove that he's dead. And that sets the backdrop for the tension of what goes on between Herod that we're going to meet next weekend. Because Herod thinks Jesus might be John the Baptist raised from the dead. And he's afraid of him. But Herod's always wanted to see him, as we'll see as the passage continues. So back to the story. Herodias, the woman instigates Antipas, her new husband, to become king. You need to do this. You need to become the king. She's in it for power after all. So he decides to go after it. Well, a little problem. About that time, a guy named Caligula. Some of you in your history know Caligula, one of the most perverse times in Roman's history. Caligula becomes emperor. And there's another Herod. There's a lot of Herods. Another Herod named Agrippa, you read about in Acts. Agrippa calls out his brother Antipas in front of Caligula, and Caligula exiles Antipas for the rest of his life. In other words, his plans are destroyed. Antipas wanted to be the king. He wanted to be the king of that region, even where Pilate was, even all of Judea, even all that his father had. But there's only one king. He wants to be the king of the Jews, literally. So when Pilate asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? The sub-stories and the plots are thick because Antipas wants to be the king. And Pilate just wants to keep his job and be a governor under the emperor. And there can only be one king. Why did Pilate send Jesus to Herod? Well, if you drop down to verse 12, which again we'll see next weekend, there's hostility between the two of these. Herod and Pilate did not get along. Pilate's not under obligation. He didn't answer to Herod, but again, he can get away from a difficult case. If he agrees with the Jews, 
there's going to be Roman injustice, he'll be in trouble with Rome. If he disagrees with the Jews, he's in trouble with them, and they'll continue to cause problems for him. So I'll wipe my hands and give him to Herod. Lastly, Pilate had done two egregious things that the Jews never forgot. In Luke 13, 1, we read about the story of where uh, Pilate slaughtered some Jewish uh, worshipers that were going up for Passover. Secondly, he made these huge shields, they were decorative shields, out of gold and put the emperor's face on them, and he worshipped the emperor as God, which the Romans did. They, some of the Romans viewed the emperor was God in flesh on earth. And so again, you have the kings, the tale of the human king or the tale of the God king that are always in the backdrop. So the Jews didn't like Pilate for those two and many other reasons. They killed Jewish worshipers, and he also worshipped the emperor as divine. Now, whenever we read the Bible, or a passage like this, or you're reading your devotionals, and you scratch your head and go, okay, so what? Um, two of the sort of questions I always ask a passage is, what does this passage tell me about God? What is God's Word telling me about God's character, His attributes, about His actions? What am I to know about God from this passage? And then secondly, what do I do as a result of that? Do I think differently? Do I need to change behavior, repent? Do I need to reframe something? So what does God's Word tell me about God and His character? And then how do I respond to that once I understand it? That's just the most fundamental way of looking at the Bible. What does it tell us about God, His character, His personality? And then how do we respond? So first of all, what does this passage tell us about God? Well, at a level it tells us the world is always going to misunderstand God. The world will always misrepresent Christ. The world will always misrepresent and be hostile toward things of Scripture. The world will always twist and take out of context that which we know about the Word of God. It shouldn't surprise us when they do this. It shouldn't surprise us when a politician quotes a verse out of context or incorrectly. It shouldn't surprise us when people use the Bible to their own ends. It shouldn't surprise us when they attack the Bible where they don't like it. We should never be surprised when people misinterpret misrepresent the bible luke is clear that the governor will twice declare jesus innocent both times Pilate will say he's innocent the second time wash his hands he'll go to herod antipas and herod antipas will say he's innocent the roman centurion who's at his side either the one who thrusts the spear in him or the one standing there overseeing it will declare this man is innocent. And a thief on the cross who is guilty of capital punishment and willingly admitted that he deserved to die will also say he's innocent. Not to mention the entire record of the Gospels say he's innocent. In fact, he's the only one who was ever born without sin and never sinned until he died. Adam had a short run at it, but he didn't last very long. First Adam and the second Adam. And the second Adam was the only one born without sin, who never sinned, and died to pay for our sins. What does this passage tell us about God? The world's always going to misrepresent him, even though the evidence is so powerful that he is who he is. So we shouldn't be surprised. The unbelieving mind is darkened. The world can't live in a Swedish neutral zone. The world lives quietly resisting the truth of the scripture resisting the truth of the person of christ resisting the concept of sin why do we work so hard to blow foam over the concept of sin and it it comes across euphemistically what's true for you 
That's malarkey. Gravity doesn't seem to respect persons. If it's true, it applies to all. If something is true that we are all sinners, you nor I are exempt. We're all sinful. The world doesn't like this talk. The self-esteem police don't like this talk. The self-police team don't like the talking about guilt and shame and sin, that we're all sinners and deserve hell. Oh, now you've crossed the fourth rail. You're really in trouble now because the world is darkened and they want to love self and they want to soothe themselves with sin and they want to drink away their anxiety and medicate away their pain and spend away their fear and indulge themselves in things that medicate and dull and distract the pain because they can't acknowledge their sinners. The believer in Jesus Christ knows that we're all sinners. Don't expect the world to understand you. And in a tolerance world where we're all supposed to get along and coexist, I just, I just love that bumper sticker. The bumper sticker to me is just the, it, it's the culmination of how stupid the society has become. <laughs> People have killed each other for centuries. Why can't we all just get along and go to kindergarten? Play fair. Well, there's a little problem. It's called the sin nature. And you can't kill the sin nature. So how do we respond? If we know this about God and his word, that the world's always going to misrepresent him, how do we then respond to that truth? Well, a number of ways. One, I would say, we need to learn how to take opportunity to clearly, gently, firmly, kindly proclaim the gospel of Christ. We need to be people who are comfortable in our skin as believers to know how to share Christ and the story of our changed life with people that whose eyes and hearts are darkened, whose minds are darkened, who are angry, who are mad, who are sad, who are terribly hurt and injured and lonely and wounded, who have no hope, who are afraid. We're all familiar with Edmund Burke's worn-out quotation, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And right now we live in a culture, in a context, in a country where we're allowed to talk about this and hold a Bible and go to church and talk about Jesus and explain it. There may be a day in our lifetimes we may not be able to do this. And it already exists in certain public squares where you can't go in and talk about your faith. You must be able to let other faiths talk about their faith, but God help you if you mention the name Jesus Christ at the end of your prayer. We're losing that opportunity. So we better take it while we have it. To be clear and kind and gentle and firm and smile. When we look at how Christ dealt with people and how he related to those who were hurt and broken versus those who were in positions of power, we get a remarkable study in how to live in a culture that's always misrepresented him. Thomas Carlyle wrote, Let one who wants to move and convince others first be convinced and move themselves. This is a $25 quotation. When our worship leaders pray before they come out and lead worship, 
you will often hear one of them pray, Lord, if we ourselves do not worship, we cannot lead anyone else in worship. And if you're a musician or a worship leader, you totally get that. If you're playing or performing, it's just playing and performing. But if you're worshiping God through the gifts and talents that you have, then it's infectious, isn't it? We, we look at someone who's worshiping God and, go, and it draws us to worship God. If you have a commentator or an actor or a musician that you just love him or her and when they get going and they're excited and passionate about something and they happen to agree with you you're excited and passionate about it too but if they say something you disagree with you get really angry at them and you want nothing more to do with them but it's what carlisle says if if we're moved and convinced about what we believe that has effect are you moved and convinced about the gospel of Christ? Further, he writes, if a person speaks with genuine earnestness, the thoughts, the emotion, and the actual condition of their own heart, others will listen because they are knit together by the tie of sympathy. And this is true in all conversations. If we are genuinely interested in others, they will often be genuinely interested in us. Now, there are all kinds of ways to proclaim Christ. And I think you do need words, and I think you do need passages, and I think you do need story. And when you share how you have come to Christ, you have to find your skin and how to do that because we don't do it because we're afraid and we don't know how. So you've got to learn how and start doing it, and then you won't be afraid. It's really that simple. You have to figure out a how and then start doing it, and then you lose the fear. Now, I can count on one hand, maybe two now, people who've gotten really angry and ticked at me. I mean, really, really, really mad. And I remember them all, too. <laughs> but there are hundreds of times I've had a conversation, and people have never been mad or angry. In fact, many very interested. Because I just tell the story of what Christ did in my life. That in my junior high years, when I was doing drugs every single day, living a very licentious life as a, teen, a teenage boy, and I was exposed to John 3.16, the simplest verse, the verse everybody in the globe almost knows, if they ever watched football or had a television in the last 30 years. And that verse that he loved me, that he died for me, that he sent his one and only son and if I believe in him, I'm given eternal life. That one verse turned me from a licentious drug-using kid with hair down to here. No disrespect, man. Uh, it, it was a hippie in that day. Today it's okay, but in that day you were a hippie. Uh, and I turned, and I got drunk or stoned three subsequent times, and I was more miserable than the last. After the third time, it was as if God said, you're done with this. You're done with this. Now, I know that doesn't happen to everyone. And if your story isn't like mine, it doesn't matter. But what I can tell you is I knew I was forgiven. I can also tell you I felt incredible guilt and shame about the sin of my teenage years. And if I think about it very long, I can still go down that hole very quickly. Even though I didn't know Christ, it weighs on me. I wish I could go back and erase those years. I cannot. But that's what forgiveness is all about. He forgives again and again and again. And after that change, I became somewhat of a zealot. I did a lot of things the wrong way because I had found life. 
I was dead and dying, and I found life and forgiveness and freedom, and the guilt and shame didn't run my life anymore, and the wrong friendships that pulled me in that direction were now no longer important. I didn't care what they thought about me because I was forgiven, and I was given new life. And I share a few verses that I like to share. I always use Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I often use Romans the 3.23, 6.23, Romans 5.8. Some of you know those as the Roman road. It doesn't matter. But if you don't know how to tell your story, you're never going to take the opportunity when it comes. Now, the hard part about all this is we think we've got to be smart enough to know the answers. I can tell you I've argued with some really smart people that don't believe anything I believe. And I've never convinced one of them to believe what I believe. It's not, okay, give me your 10, I've even done this. What are the five greatest objections keeping you from trusting Christ? And list them off. I say, there are really good answers for those. There are really good answers. Would you like to talk about, yeah, and you answer them all. Well, they get five more. Six more, 10 more. Well, I just can't believe that. I just can't believe this or that. And it's always this circle. And I used to try and arm wrestle people into the kingdom with that because I'm a smart guy. I can do this. It never worked once. I've never argued anyone into the kingdom of God. But I've shared my story, and I've explained a few verses, and then you step back and you let God's Word and God's Spirit do the work. And that's the key. I don't have to be that smart. I don't have to know the answers of Unitarianism and Universalism and Zoroastrianism. I don't have to know all that stuff. All I have to know is I was blind and now I see. Here are some verses that changed my life. And the truth of God came into me, and I found forgiveness of Christ. I had an encounter with the work of Christ, and I'm a different man today because of it. And nobody can argue with that. And let it go. And you love them, and you care about them, and you smile at the future, but you clearly proclaim the story. You do it kindly. You do it faithfully gently and you love the person what does this passage tell us people will always misrepresent christ what do, how do we respond to that well one way is you have opportunity while we have it to share christ with those people who don't know him to proclaim the gospel of christ that he lived that he died he was buried he came back from the dead there's only one king Our strategic ministry partner, Dennis Lam, in Russia, um, Brian Petak, received an email from him this past week about a woman named Natasha, 40 years of age. She lives close to our apartment, he writes. A month ago, she lost her 16-year-old daughter who was mercilessly murdered. Several days ago, Natasha decided she did not want to live anymore. She was planning to hang herself. She put a loop on her neck and fixed the other end of a rope around a pipe on the ceiling. She jumped off a chair, but the pipe broke because it could not support her weight. At that moment, she realized there were some believers that lived close by to her, and she came over to see us. I told her about God's love, and she repented. But her husband is against us and does not allow her to attend church. Please pray for Natasha and all her family. Dennis Lam's doing the work. He's just telling the story. 
He took the opportunity when a crisis came and a woman came to his door and he and his wife shared the gospel of Christ with a woman desperately hurt and broken and sad. That's what proclaiming Christ means. Only one king. Doesn't matter what the world thinks. There's only one that matters. Father, help us as we look at your word to know that you are the only eternal king, the only true king, and that we are given a simple task of not convincing or persuading or having all the answers, but just sharing the power of the gospel of Christ, that you lived, died, were buried, and that you came back from the dead. And you promise life eternal to any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. Give us the language and the way to tell that story through your word and allowing your spirit to work. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.